Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Look Ahead Podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our program is brought to you by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII delivering the advantage. Later in the program, Brian Clark of the Hudson Institute on a new conference series on innovation that starts this week. But first, joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, hope you guys had a great snow-filled uh, weekend and uh, welcome to the start of another week. We did. We even got some skiing in and zero degree weather. Uh, that uh, sounds absolutely uh, spectacular and good to know that there is actually a little bit of real snow in New England. A great story in the New York Times about how, you know, these sport, you know, winter sports are booming in the Northeast, but whether or not climate change will rob us of it. I just want to point out we had snow in Washington, D.C., uh, but it had a 701 day drought, apparently, uh, according to the news. So I'm glad we broke that, even though it'll be tropical this week. Um, OK. In the week since last we spoke, we now have a continuing resolution. Donald Trump won uh, Iowa handily uh, and is actually poised to win uh, New Hampshire as well. And Nikki Haley may be uh, the last candidate uh, and, and you know, we'll certainly watch this space. Um, any change about your budget case and your outlook specifically, uh, you know, as you discussed last week, right? I mean, the more we get into this presidential race, the more politically de- debilitated and debilitating it's going to be on the funding profile. Any any change in yeah. your base case? No, I mean, the base case, look, Vago, I think the old saying, you hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Um, but last week, you know, there were a couple of things that didn't make me more hopeful. I think one was, you know, the momentum that Trump has built. And, um, you know, he messaged or posted, I don't know what medium it was on, but, you know, in the, in the context of the border deal, immigration deal that the Senate is going to try and hammer out and then send over the House. It was kind of like, this is no time for compromise. You know, we need to get everything we're looking for on uh, border control and uh, and immigration policy changes. So, you know, that's one factor to watch this week. If the Senate can, in fact, reach some kind of agreement on on these two factors, you know, and then they send that over the house, you know, is that the key that kind of unlocks the Ukraine supplemental, the other money that was uh, going to be made available for things like the submarine industrial base that was included in the uh, $106 billion administration request, but then a $110 billion bill the way the Senate wrote it up. So I don't have a reason to change right now. I, I think you know, great, we've got some, you know, these two supplementals to March, um, but Congress tends to work on deadlines. There can well be further uh, slips and CRs that extend into April. Um, you know, the the kind of sort of Damocles that's overhanging this whole sector is this, uh, you know, provision in the uh, Fiscal Responsibility Act that you know, if you don't have any of these, if you you can have 11 of the appropriations bills done, but if you don't have all 12 done, you know, on April 30th, they're all going to get cut to 99% of FY23 levels. Uh, I agree. I don't think that the majority of Congress wants this to happen, but I still, you know, in the back of my mind, there, there are two factors I see. One is, um, you know, kind of the Freedom Caucus view that, 
we have to cut non-defense discretionary spending, and this is really the path to get to that. Um, the very narrow margins in the House that are going to be even you know more narrow uh, with the three retirements that have been announced, um, McCarthy, Santos, and, and uh, drawing a blank, a congressman from Ohio. Uh, and, and so it's just, it's still going to be a tough slog. It's going to be very interesting what companies say during uh, earnings reporting season this week. Most of the U.S. majors report, and you know, I don't think any of them have a clearer crystal ball than I do. Are you convinced that Ukraine aid is not going to happen, right? I mean, there are folks who say, well, it'll be later in the first quarter or maybe in the second quarter. Uh, it depends on uh, people's uh, definition, right? I mean, I guess a congressional person's second quarter is our normal first quarter. Yeah. Um, what What's your sense? I don't know. I mean, I hear the rhetoric, but I also see the public opinion polls that Pew and Gallup have put out that show that most Republicans are opposed to, you know, the people they survey are opposed to giving Ukraine more aid. Um, the House is on recess this week. I'm sure they're going to hear that message amplified again. So, you know, could you see some kind of deal crafted where, you know, the way a lot of the legislation had been written in the uh, Senate version of the supplemental, money was going to be spread out over FY25. I think in some cases it probably even expired, you know, years after that. So, you could see this kind of, you know, come back together again in April. Um, I suppose it's also going to depend on, you know, literally what happens in the ground in uh, in Ukraine and Russia. You know, is there anything dramatic that tips us one way or another? Um, you know, a massive Russian missile offensive that really takes down uh, significant parts of the Ukrainian infrastructure, you know, a successful Russian offensive. None of that is highly probable in my view right now, but you never know, you know, so there could be externals that, that change this. But but right now, you know, as much as House and Senate Republican leadership say they want this thing, it's just not clicking with with the people who uh, their constituents. So I kind of want to hold fire on that. Um, I, I don't know if it's not clicking with their constituents. It's rather the ecosystem to which those uh, constituents are focused are delivering a negative message about this every day, right? Yeah. And so eventually it's, well, you were leaving our border unguarded and we're helping these guys and we shouldn't help the guys. And you just have to be cognizant who's delivering those messages to you and what interest they may have in that, uh, right. right? The more the Trump, you know, the more he gains momentum and the more he weighs in on this, the more likely, you know, it's going to be tough. I mean, he, so... And I and, and and it's not just the border of Argo. I think there also is a view, you know, why are we spending all this money in Ukraine when, you know, the, the old, you know, debt is out of control, spending's out of control, you know, why are we spending money on Ukraine when we have, you know, we we've got to address the fentanyl problem in the United States, you know, we we right. we have we should be spending this money in the United States. So um you know, I have a friend who's retired Navy and and he voices that view. We we need much more money to help support veterans. And <clears throat> but why why is all that going to Ukraine when you know the VA <clears throat> need needs a lot of help here? So it's just I I get it, but you know, whatever whatever leadership is talking about here, I'm just not sure, you know, the rubber's gonna meet the road when uh, when these votes come up <clears throat> in in the House and Senate. I think it could have pass the Senate. I'm just not sure. It could pass the House or what Johnson's really going to do with it. Speaker Johnson. Well, 
Um, I, I, I would say the number one obligation of leadership is communicating. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, you could argue that not as good of a case has been made by the administration on why this is important. Um, it is taken as a matter of, of fact, um, whereas there is a competition of ideas. You may not like the ideas that are being proponed out there. Um, the, right, the fentanyl crisis is not a new thing. Um, the, there is at least a veteran's infrastructure that exists, even though it, you may consider it to be overloaded. Uh, right. But whereas this is also a priority, I, I want to just use this to ramp into geopolitics because you had a great note uh, where uh, you said, uh, you know, geopolitics that was then, which is different uh, than now, where you were taking exception with the Financial Times columnist in a piece he wrote. But I want to go to what the geopolitical signal is, Byron, that the United States you know, says we, we've got your back to Ukraine. We're going to support you. You know, it's about you winning and Russia losing. And then Russia winning because we don't provide that aid, ultimately. Uh, the Russians and the Chinese make the case around the world. We're the dependable people, not America. Hey, go ask Afghans and Ukrainians how that turned out, which is a message, you know, and is resonating apparently even in Taiwan, where people are saying, like, do we want to really hang our hat on the Americans? Right. Um, ultimately, what's the message that it sends the world if we don't support Ukraine? Well, it's... Vago, you know, I look at global defense stock prices, and here we are again in January. I mean, the year's, you know, 22 days old, but um, European and Asian defense stocks are again outperforming U.S. stocks. And to me, you know, markets send signals, and what the market to me is sending a signal is, you know, yeah, if this is where we're headed, you know, the U.S. is not going to be able to pass aid for Ukraine, maybe Trump gets elected. Um U.S. defense is uh, is going to be in for a tough patch here. I mean, it, and if, you know, Trump is going to try and hold U.S. forces out of Europe and again, kind of amp up the burden sharing debate with NATO and Korea and Japan, well, the defense industries of those companies are going to benefit. And so I think that's what you're seeing. And, and you know, the idea that the U.S. is going to be able to export all this stuff to these countries, I, I put a strong, uh, you know, check on on that notion. Um, you know, how, how so? What What is it people have to, because there is this sense well, it's that like sort any, of we're in the just, money when this happens, right? Well, yeah, but but we're in the money when this happens. But come on, you know, if, if you know, what what's the reaction if the United States was spending all this money on defense and we're turning and buying all this stuff from Europe? I mean, yeah, there's some things that uh, Europe currently doesn't have the capability to do. But and, and you know, both uh, was probably about a month ago. Um Senior leadership, I think, of both Airbus and Leonardo made the case like, why, why are European countries spending all this money on U.S. kit? They should be buying and supporting a European defense industry. Right. So you're only going to see that message amplified. And and I just find it um, naive to think that, oh, we're, they're just going to buy American kit. I mean, come on, it's their jobs in Europe, too. You know, there's an industrial base. If you can't you know, if you think in 2026 that maybe there's, you know, President Trump says, well, you know, <clears throat> that's tough. You know, you Poland, you Germany, you kind of take care of, of whatever Putin's doing in Kaliningrad or something. You know, <clears throat> what what who are they going to turn to? They're going to turn to their own industries and their their partners in, in the world that think uh, in, in similar ways. So. Um, but, and 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 what about that uh, Financial Times piece yeah, yeah. And, and the differences? So, in the so all I was really trying to say, look, you know, the guy, this was really more, 
the piece was aimed at investors. It was literally titled, Should Investors Care About Geopolitics? And the person who wrote it, Stuart Kirk, you know, I kind of agree with some of what he said, but I also thought a lot of it just missed, um, you know, what really had changed. He was using uh, data showing, you know, well, actually, U.S. equities did very well during the Second World War. He made the case the same as true in the U.K., and that, you know, much as there are bad things happening geopolitically, you know, maybe the market is too concerned about this and that things are going to be just fine and dandy. Um, you know, I think all this, you have to look at it contextually. Um, and I, I think there are things that maybe there are geopolitical events in the context of defense that <clears throat> don't necessarily have an immediate impact on, on contractors. It doesn't mean new markets, but they most certainly affect the contractors. And one of the things that I cited was, you know, Venezuela has a failed state, the, the turmoil that's engulfed Ecuador, and the fact that that's creating migrant flows to the United States that then <clears throat> wrap up the border immigration policy debate and curtail any Ukraine aid. So these things geopolitically, you know, do have impact. Now, on the question about investors, you know, look, we're just in a fundamentally different environment than the Second World War. I mean, um, the the things that I cited, you know, well, one is markets don't always do well in wartime. And there was a chart that actually I pulled from a book that Barton Biggs had shown that was the German uh, stock market index, uh, you know, from 1930 to 1950. And it's, you know, G Germany froze its defense markets in 1944, and then they obviously collapsed with the defeat of that country. So, the idea that investors are more wars just don't matter. You know, you could look at China um, as, as another case in point, the Shanghai Exchange and what happened, you know, World War II and then when the communists took over. So geopolitics most certainly matter to investors for the United States and just globally, you know, the things that I thought were different this time. I, I don't remember or recall an instance where you had a key element of economic power, namely semiconductors, that was so concentrated um, in and around, you know, potential conflict zones, uh, TSMC in Taiwan, and then the role of the semiconductor industry in in South Korea, to a much lesser extent in in uh, Japan. That's a real different factor, and there have been some really good work done by Bloomberg, Rand, and the Rhodium Group on what the what the global economic impact of that would be if you had a war or threat of war in that part of the world. Um, no country, you know, nuclear weapons came after 1945. We haven't seen them used. I think that would be a horrible shock to global sentiment if that happened. Right. <clears throat> U.S. markets did well in 1941 to 1945 because we didn't have our industry bombed. Um, and even the British, who had some of their industry bombed in 1940, um, you know, th there wasn't this, you know, destruction of, of economic capacity and capability that happened to Germany and Japan. Um, and I think, you know, you can play with scenarios in Russia, you know, what happens if Putin is overthrown and it's a failed Russian state? What does that look like? The other extreme, what happens if Russia actually wins in Ukraine? And oh, by the way, they then control effectively, you know, about 30% of, of global wheat production. I mean, there you can just go on and on on these differences. Uh, public debt held in the United States, you know, we're now at levels about 100% of GDP that we saw in 1946 after we had fought World War II. So <clears throat> there, there are really substantial differences here. And I think anybody who just says, ah, geopolitics, don't worry about it. The markets always work out. I mean, I, again, 
you know, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Geopolitics, schmeopolitics. <laughs> Something. Right. No, no. But, you know, I mean, it's no, a, no, no, a term agree, that's bandied around. It's like, you know, there's a lot geopolitically that doesn't matter. I would agree with with uh, with with the writer's assertion that, yeah, I mean, there, there are so many things. It's like it just doesn't matter. Um, uh, and so he's right from that standpoint. But from the bigger picture stuff and, you know, maybe taking the other end of that argument, it most certainly matters. And we are in a different era. Uh, in, uh, indeed. Uh, let's go to uh, the week ahead. Uh, what uh, should people have on their agenda uh, over the week from your standpoint? Besides earnings reports, Vago, I think you and Brian are going to talk about the Hudson Institute event on uh, January 24th. I will be listening to that with uh, with keen and open ears. Um, they're also, Hudson also is going to have uh, General Christopher Mahoney, the Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, I believe, on January 25th. CSIS has a couple of events. I think the the interesting one for me is on Air Force priorities on January 24th. And then there's another on January 25th on U.S. nuclear uh, targeting policy. RUSI, Royal United Service Institute, is holding one on Latin American security. It's a conference, basically an all-day conference. Um, there are a couple of Chatham houses doing one on, um, you know, Iran's role in regional escalation and, uh, um, non-state armed uh, groups is the subject of an IISS event uh, on January 25th that's being held in Washington, D.C. And I should point out, you know, NATO is starting its Steadfast Defender 24 military exercise. These run through May 2024. But, you know, I think anytime you get 90,000 Alliance troops exercising, that that's a pretty potent uh, signal and and uh, you know hopefully there's some good lessons that come out of those exercises. Uh, indeed, uh, terrific uh, list. And yes, Brian and I are going to talk about uh, the conference in a minute, and we're very excited uh, to have this uh, conversation. You know, it's something that we talk about a lot, uh, and uh, you know, it's 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 important that we make progress on it and and maybe highlight the progress where it is being made. Uh, but also uh, respectfully maybe point out some places where uh, there could be uh, some more work. Let me just briefly ask you about any change in your expectation forecast, uh, you know, for any of the companies that are going to be reporting. No, I mean, I think, you know, we've got budget uncertainty. Um, I still think we've got, you know, the bulk of the supply network issues are probably behind us, but I think labor is going to be an issue. We're still going to have the question about how quickly can you increase production you know, there's going to be some very specific issues uh, that people are going to be drilling down on Lockheed Martin on the status of the F-35 program. And then uh, uh, for Northrop Grumman, it's going to be the news on the cost overruns on the Sentinel program. Um, I should note, you know, one of the events that, I, that popped in my inbox, literally as we were speaking, Vago, on uh, January 26th, <clears throat> the Arms Control Association is doing an event on the Sentinel program, uh, risk, costs, and alternatives. So for people who are interested in their particular program and maybe an outside perspective on it, uh, that that might be worth tuning into. Uh, indeed. Byron, thanks very much. Uh, hope you have a great day, a great week, and look forward to having you back on the program again next week. Thanks so much. You got it. Cheers, Vago. Thank you. Thank you. And a quick word from our sponsors, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications are brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, 
Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. And joining us now is my good friend Brian Clark, the director of the Center for Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, who is hosting a fascinating uh, new conference this week, Solving Operational Problems with Today's Technology. It's the first uh, in a series of conferences Brian and Hudson will be hosting, focused on innovation in partnership with Clarion Defense, the world's leading exhibition firm that produces such events as DSEI and Sophic. And I will be moderating a panel at the event and starting next month. And over the coming year, we too are launching a monthly program focused on delving more deeply uh, into how to better drive innovation uh, and uh, target the impediments that hamper it. Uh, And that series is also sponsored by Clarion. Brian and I are helping set the stage for uh, the major Apex Innovation Conference by Clarion next January. Brian, thanks very much. Uh, for joining us. I know there's a lot of work uh, that goes into this. Tell the audience a little bit about this conference as well as the series uh, and what you're trying to accomplish uh, over the coming year. Yeah, thanks, Vago. It's uh, great to be here. And uh, yeah, like you said, uh, as the name suggests, you know, the conference is going to focus on uh, how do we deal with today's problems with the solutions that are available now. Um, a lot of times we end up in the DOD trying to create some solution, uh, some new system that's going to uh, address a problem of today or the future, and it takes decades to finally reach fruition. Uh, and even then, it may not be the thing that we had originally envisioned it as being. So we're trying to look at ways that we can take advantage of commercial technologies, um, new information technologies, um, the ability to integrate uh, systems using software, and bring things to the field today you know, that'll solve the problems of now. Um, and uh, in a lot of ways, that involves you know, interacting with the commercial industry. It involves making our defense research organizations have to retool and, and rethink how they approach uh, problem uh, solving and, and acquisition and and integration of new systems. So to to do that, we're going to bring together some of the organizations that are working in this field. Um, We're going to start off uh, at uh, one o'clock on Wednesday, the the 24th of January, uh, with a conversation with Aditi Kumar, who's the deputy director at the Defense Innovation Unit. They're central to a lot of the DOD's efforts to bring commercial technology to bear against uh, battlefield problems. Um, She is one of the leaders of the Replicator Initiative, which People have heard a lot about, I'm sure. So we'll probably talk about that. But uh, more importantly, we'll talk about what DIU is doing with DIU 3.0, which is um, their effort to better uh, interact with the combatant commanders, translate their problems into something that can be addressed by uh, industry, and then getting industry involved to deliver those solutions and do it at scale. So industry feels like they can um, actually have a business case to, to stay in this uh, line of work. Um, then we're going to follow Aditi with uh, Margie Palmieri, who's the Deputy Chief Data or Digital uh uh, artificial intelligence officer um, at the Department of Defense. Uh, so Margie's going to talk about how do we integrate these new systems uh, with each other as well as with what we have within the DoD now. Um, and that involves a lot of software, uh, a lot of uh, data fabric uh, integration, uh, and involves uh, bringing together you know, software and commercial providers with our traditional hardware providers and traditional defense industry. Mm-hmm. And so we'll talk a little bit about what they're doing there. I think it's really interesting, uh, not to interrupt you on your flow, right? But all too often, <laughs> we're really looking for unobtainium, you know, as if we could hit a massive reset button and get beyond some of the legacy capabilities we have. Actually, as opposed to doing, and I know you've done an enormous amount of work on this, it's actually an adaptation and a better interconnection of a lot of the things that we have now with a few bespoke pieces that get us to be better able 
uh, to field capabilities at scale for some of the competitors that we're facing a little bit like what Dr. Hicks is trying to do with Replicator, assuming it gets the funding, right? Yeah. So in a lot of ways, you know, like, yeah, like you're saying, Vago, the, um, what we have to do is sort of uh, retool our thinking of the problem uh, to be able to use the solutions that exist today. So we're going to adapt our workflows, have to adapt how we do business, how we operate uh, to be able to take advantage of technology that exists now uh, and be able to solve problems um, more, more urgently than we could if we were to develop a concept from scratch and then pursue the solutions needed to empower that concept, which you know can take decades. And, and that's the approach we've used to take. Um, so now we have to rethink um, our approach and say, well, you know, as a customer of technology rather than a developer of technology, in a lot of cases, uh, the DoD is going to have to um, ad adapt to what the technology can provide as opposed to dictating what the technology delivers. And which takes us to the panel discussion that I'm going to be moderating with folks uh, from the AI side of things, from the uh, innovative production side of it, all the way to uh, the the early stage company that could actually prove game changing. Yeah, so we're going to bring together um, some industry and government people who are working at the deck plate level, if you will, in this area. So um, Sham Shankar, who's the uh, Chief Technology Officer at Palantir, um, as well as uh, Jimmy Jones, who's the uh, the uh, warfighting application lead for stitches in the U.S. Air Force and their uh, integration prime office, um, you know, who's trying to bring together the data uh, fabric uh, that the DoD needs to be able to integrate disparate systems around these, you know, new operational concepts. Uh, but then also, you know, companies that are new uh, into the field like um, uh, Helicon, which Wes Naylor from there will be a part of the panel as well. Um, and then um, we're going to bring on a couple of uh, you know, people who are uh, working this uh, from the, the hardware side as well. So I think we're going to have a good mix on the panel of software, hardware, um, and uh, you know, government integration experts to talk about how do we make this happen and how are they making it happen today. Uh, it's going to be very exciting to have Rev uh, and Sham on the panel. It's going to be great to see Wes Naylor, uh, given uh, and for the audience uh, that might not know, Helicon Chemical uh, has a proprietary binder that could increase the range of almost any munition uh, by uh, 30%. Uh, and so that would be very exciting if you can do that in the same missile body or have a smaller weapon. Uh, that has uh, that range. Uh, we're almost out of time, uh, Brian. Where can people go uh, to get more information and also, more, most importantly, to register because there is an in-person uh, as well as a remote component to this. Tell the audience where they got to go uh, to be able to join us, either virtually or in-person. Yeah, so Vago, the um, the event's going to be at the Hudson Institute, um, which is at 1201 Pennsylvania Avenue down in Washington, D.C., uh, across from the Ronald Reagan building. Um, and it'll be at one o'clock on Wednesday, January 24th. Uh, if you want to register to be there in person so you can ask questions and interact with some of these government and industry leaders, um, you can register at the Hudson website. So if you go to Hudson.org, it's right there on the front page right now, and you can uh, click on that and register. Um, if you want to view the uh, event virtually, you don't need to interact with anybody, then then you can do that as well from that same page. Uh, so go there and, and you can just dial in and we're going to do a live stream of the event um, as it occurs. And, and uh, very briefly, right, this is a countdown to the big uh, Apex uh, conference by Clarion that's going to be uh, in January. Can you give the audience a little bit of a flavor of the arc of some of the events we're going to see over the coming year? 
Yeah, so next January, um, we're going to have the Apex Conference out at National Harbor. So it'll be a big event talking about how do we uh, pursue these near-term solutions for current operational problems um, and how do you bring together industry and government to make these things happen. Um, so between now and then, we're going to have a series of events at Hudson where we continue to talk about this effort at joint integration or mission integration. There's lots of names for it, but essentially you know, creating these near-term operational solutions. Um, and uh, I know that you also will be doing a series of, of programs on this to sort of highlight the players um, and how the DOD is all evolving to do this. Um, but I think, you know, fundamentally uh, what we're trying to get at is there's an urgency here, not just because of the operational challenges facing the United States, uh, but also because a lot of these companies may decide to leave this field. You know, there's a lot of right. uh, private money currently at play, you know, in terms of uh, venture-backed companies that are they're entering the defense space. Uh, and these companies won't stay in that business if they don't see a return on that investment. And unless the DOD begins to you know, employ their capabilities at scale, we're going to see them leave and exit. And we're going to have to go back to our traditional defense suppliers, which which don't necessarily have the agility um, or the, the cost profile we need to be able to field forces at the scale and tempo they need for the future. Uh, Brian, uh, I'm very excited about this. You and I have been having these conversations for almost 20 years now, uh, and it's <laughs> going to be good uh, at a time when I think there's a lot of receptiveness on all elements of, of the audience. Again, I think as Frank Kendall, uh, Air Force Secretary Kendall points out, it's about the money. That's the most important yeah. thing. We've got plenty of ideas, but if we get stable funding, we can help make the magic happen. Uh, thanks so very much. Thanks very much uh, in advance uh, to Clarion Defense, who we're partnered with on our series uh, and, and as well as uh, on your side of things, Brian. Thanks so very much. Break a leg, and we'll see you on Wednesday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vago. See you Wednesday.